Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic Brazilian artist Adriana Barajal and this week we chat to Kiki Smith. But just before we get to this episode, I am delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Working with the world's leading galleries, Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art. If you want to learn more about Kiki Smith, view her artworks, or hear about her exhibitions, then do visit ocular.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most pioneering artists alive today, Kiki Smith. Born in 1954 in Germany, raised in New Jersey, and now based between the Catskills and New York City, where we are recording today, Kiki Smith is an artist who works across a whole range of mediums, ranging from sculpture to printmaking, tapestry to collage. She focuses on subjects of mortality and decay, the body and the earth, what it means to be human and our relationship to nature. She has said, our bodies are basically stolen from us, and my work is about trying to reclaim one's own turf, or one's own vehicle of being here, to own it and to use it and to look at how we are. But it is this notion of collage that seems to be at the heart of her oeuvre, as she works with multiple forms, hybridised figures, and looks at both ancient mythology and contemporary politics, such as tragic events including the AIDS crisis or the cruel laws around abortion. As a result, she has used materials such as bodily fluids to investigate subjects around death, reproduction and birth. Working indefatigably since the 1970s, Smith, although having briefly studied at the Hartford Art College in Connecticut, is for the most part self-taught. She has described herself as a thing maker, and it is this desire and hunger for experimentation that makes her work so captivating and engaging. Studying the world by living and surrounding herself with nature, she has also since gone on to train as an emergency medical technician. A professor at NYU and Columbia University, Smith has also exhibited across the globe, from the Whitney Museum to MoMA, the Whitechapel to most recently the Seoul Museum of Art in South Korea, and is in collections of some of the most renowned museums in the world. So I couldn't be more excited to be interviewing her today. Kiki Smith, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you very much for coming to my house. Pleasure. So thank you so much for having me over. I have been a long time fan of your work, having seen it at the lights of La Monet in Paris, but also modern art Oxford and New York and London. I am always struck by the sensitivity of your work, whether it is towards an animal, a plant, a print or a sculpture. They are these objects that completely entrance me. They feel familiar and bodily like, like we've seen them in nature, folk tales, myths and dreams. Yet at the same time, they feel otherworldly, a little bit like the body, such as when we see organs out of place. They almost feel abstract. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel in front of your work? 
Actually, I never hope for people to feel any particular way whatsoever because in a certain way, it's not my business how they feel. But I'm doing something because something tells me to pay attention to it, that it's engaging to me for whatever reason, or that I see something and it startles me and fascinates me. And so I want to have some kind of experience that I can make up for myself with a thing or a being, you know, and then I'm just fortunate enough that I can put it outside of my house, get it outside of my house. You know, I always think I'm not particularly unique person and what's happening to me isn't unique and everyone has their own experience with many images or things or living beings and they bring that to them and then they can have hopefully at best something in what you make resonates for other people. And what about you? How do you feel when you're making work? You know, I mean, I always have liked making things in a certain way to be present and to be absent. You know, that it takes you into yourself or into the moment, to the now, and at the same time you become forgetful of yourself and you lose time and space and you're just intent on having a relationship with the material and that's very fascinating to me yeah totally and also you work across so many different subjects and objects and processes and I'm fascinated by this idea that you call yourself a thing maker I've always wanted to ask why are you so drawn to working across such an array of materials because they're great because they all afford you a very different experience you know, the properties of materials and the histories of materials and, you know, to the weight of them, the taste of them, everything about them, they have very, for the most part, unless you're doing with something extremely new, have very long histories of how people have approached them. And, you know, you can see how different artists are approaching materials in different ways. But I like very much that they have sort of lumpent or nondescript form and then you get to form it into something and then it can sometimes dissolve back into nothing at over time certainly will dissolve back into nothingness again but it has a momentary aspect to it that you're just making a collision or a constellation or of one material a group of materials and form and then synthesizing that into an experience for a moment and and, you know for me I think it's very helpful to make something that can exist outside your body as a proof or as a problem or as a way to look at an experience that's different than your thoughts you know also because it's a physical relationship with the world and how it's manifesting completely and I, I and I'm also fascinated by your using of the body as well because there's something about every piece of work that you make the body in a way seems to be in it not physically or literally but psychologically almost and I love this idea of what you say you use the body to reclaim one's own vehicle of being here to own it and to use it to look at how we are here whether it be a plant or an animal or a, a sculpture or anything the body seems to play a huge role I guess in the root of your works I mean what is it about the body that you are interested in exploring 
You know, it was just really that, I mean, I, it was mostly when I was young, but I thought this is the primary vehicle you're in. Maybe your consciousness is the greater one, but you're in your body for hopefully a bit of time. <laughs> you know, at the same time, it's subject to all these things that you have nothing to do with. And so you're always in a kind of battle or something of trying to slough off the excess things and try to find out what is your own experience of something. And But at the same time, you know, I guess I'm attracted to other species' bodies too because, you know, they're just different mathematics. You know, like the math or the geometry of what makes a cat, just like things morphing and changing. But also for making things that we can make things through intermediate act some kind of active intermediate process or something like that. But to me, it's very powerful to be able to just take the energy out of your body and turn it into something. And to me, that's the most important part is to have that experience. You know, for being an artist, yeah, I'm interested in having an experience. And in a certain ways, often what you make is a byproduct of the experience, but to me, where what I remember is the experience. You know, because you go into an unknown and also you go into an unknown with materials that you can't control them exactly. You know, it's not like, yeah, you can just beam it. You have to deal with its properties and its properties can kick back or no, we won't go that way or that way. And so... A lot of it is having a physical relationship with materials. I mean, even just looking around, you know, even looking at the flower or something. There are so many organic, just being surrounded yeah. by, I guess you're experiencing, and I yeah. can see works of yours around, and actually how that sort of informs, like that cactus almost informs the star or something. And actually, because you're putting these materials that you've made side by side with nature, suddenly it's kind of erupting into this new thing for me. You know, nature is very exciting. More so for me now, like living outside the city, you're just constantly bombarded also by nature and seeing things you've never seen before. Like last week I saw a bobcat for the first time in my life. And then I saw an eagle flying over the car when we were driving, carrying a very heavy branch. And then I saw a little fox in the backyard jumping all around. And, and I saw a turkey the other day, too. So it's, you see all these things. And then it's like, for me, like when I made sculptures of stomachs, it's sort of like, well, what does a bobcat mean to you? Like, does it have any meaning? Or what's it doing in your psyche? It's always like a discovery. Yeah. And almost like a sort of stage set or something in the sense that it's always so exciting. There's always something new. There's always a new shape as well. And I, I love with your work, when I go to an exhibition of yours, I always discover something completely new because it's also these kind of amalgamation or hybridized figures that you bring together. And actually, when you are at one with nature, you do see the eagle, the branch, and that almost becomes a whole form in itself. You know, it's a great privilege to be an artist. And it's a privilege for the taking Anyone can be an artist. It's just because it's a self-proclaimed activity. And then you have to follow it. And it takes you on these journeys doing things that you wouldn't think about or expect or have a sense that's you. 
Like it changes. It constantly disrupts your sense of self or your identity or all these things. And that's a great relief yeah. to have. Definitely. But I'd love to go back to your beginnings. Uh -huh. So you were born in 1954 in Germany. Yeah. But you were raised in New Jersey. You are, your mother was an opera singer and your father was an architect, painter and sculptor. And then in the mid-70s, you moved here to New York City. I mean, tell me about your childhood. Was art always present? Yes. <laughs> That's all there was. Really? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Our two <laughs> sisters, I have two sisters, and, you know, our life revolved around helping my father with his work, like moving sculptures around the backyard or putting paper models together or, then, or reconfiguring them while he would tell us what to do. And my mother also very much facilitated and helped him in his work and in his teaching also. And yeah, and all their friends were artists or writers. I mean, we had a very suburban childhood. I grew up in New Jersey, so it was very quiet, suburban life. We didn't do things or go places or anything like that. But certainly everything was just about art somehow. So for me, like even for me, I grew up mostly around abstraction because my father's generation of the abstract expressionists, and so we grew up with, you know, a fair amount of abstract paintings in the house, and my father's work was abstract. You know, it really wasn't till college, practically, that I really saw in depth representational work. And, you know, I always think that's why it's so exotic to me. Like, my first experience really is more abstraction, and, you know, probably... If I can live with things, I would live with more abstraction than representation. So representational work was very mysterious and exotic to me. My father's students were artists, young artists, so I always grew up really liking artists and um, feeling an affinity to being around artists. Yeah, and just the artist's way of life almost. Yeah, because I, I, mean, I think it was an advantage for me in a way because many people, my generation, I saw them in middle age really struggling with whether they could really be artists in a certain way. And for me, I never questioned that at all. It would have been more a stretch for me to question that and go do something else. Like if I'd been brave, you know, yeah. I, I would like to study other things, I think, also. But Well, you've got your beekeeping now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and one can learn a lot of various things along the way, as obviously you have. So, you know, there's nothing stopping us from learning. But, no, I was very, yeah, I just grew up around art. So it's something that's like second nature to me. And um, I think that that was a good thing in my life. I love the idea of going from abstraction to figuration as well, because it's almost the opposite that's happened yeah. in art history that we've always yeah. learned. If anything, people start with the figure and then they completely dissolve it into abstract shards. Yeah. No, and I had actually never any interest to... I mean, I definitely like representation, but... I had no interest in making figuration whatsoever because I just thought it's like a, a swirling pool of mess. 
all of it, but it's just where my work went. And then sometimes it falls out, too. I guess I made one figure in the last year, but what comes and goes, it just takes you where it wants to go. I do believe that very adamantly, that one is supposed to follow one's work. And, you know, if you thought about it, you wouldn't want to go there. But, you know, I always think it's like playing hardball. Like, you know, if you're going to take it on, then you have to do it on its terms and really be willing to devote yourself where it goes, whether you think it seems ridiculous or trite or whatever. I love that idea of the work almost leading you. I think it has to. I think one's ego or one's desire for things can get in the way. That can be ahead of the work. And I don't think that's so good for people. I think if you just go with your work, it will tell you what you need. And it always, to me, in retrospect, I see how biographical it is or how I needed certain kinds of information at a given moment or to learn a certain process. I mean, a lot of things I do, like someone came and asked me if I wanted to do some kind of process. And you know, probably a lot of times I said no, but sometimes I saw that there was a lot of space in that for me to have my own experience. But it didn't, it came at a time when it was possible for me to say yes to something. Because sometimes things come and you're not really ready or it's, yeah, it's just not right for you. But for me, I'm very uh, happy and greedy to learn different methods of working and different traditional methods of making things and then how to let them live through you that it keeps them vital because you have to be adding in your own vitality to that so that it's not nostalgic or dead mediums and we're always doing that with history with certainly with images and everything else we're choosing to either break with what exist historically or to reiterate but make it vital change it and put in your our own blood into it or something yeah I mean I think some of my favorite works of yours um I mean so many but some of them are really when you examine or investigate or reinterpret historical sort of mythological or biblical figures such as Lilith or the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene or whoever. And that, for me, I think is so exciting. So, for example, recently I saw your sculpture of Lilith and I'd never, I didn't even know who Lilith was before until uh-huh. last summer when I saw her, the exhibition at the British Museum, yes. which is all about the feminine yes. divine. And, uh, you know, they were like, oh, well, the, this woman, Lilith, you know, she was Adam's first wife, but she left him because she didn't want to be submissive. And I was like, wait, 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 hang on a second. <laughs> I was never taught that at school. Yeah. We were taught Adam and Eve, and actually Eve was the submissive one. Um, tell me about, I, I just I would love to, like, talk to you about this idea of reinterpreting these figures and what draws well, you to someone like Lilith. You know, things just like come into your mind or pop into your mind for different weird reasons. And they don't necessarily have anything to do with what you're doing. I love both Lilith and Eve. Like Lilith, I used to make all my sculptures out of paper mache. I was making a woman crouching. And I was making this paper mache and of this woman crouching. And I have no idea what I thought I was doing particularly with it. But then... It reminded me of that. And then also I was working with a dancer at the time, Melissa Fenley, and she had asked me, 
make some sets for her. And so I was going and watching dancers. And the thing I liked about dancers were they weren't in relationship to gravity and that sculpture and figuration and us, for the most part, are always bound by gravity and it's so heavy, pressing on us. And so then I thought I could take paper mache sculptures and just tape, just paper mache them to the wall. So they, they were weightless. Then Lilith, I put her on the wall. Then afterwards, I thought about Lilith because Lilith disembodies. She lets go of her bodies and becomes spirit. So somehow to me with the dancers and stuff that I could just have her hovering like a fly or a shadow or a spirit on the wall. And also she has all these sort of treacherous things about her that she's uncontrollable and that's much more to a sense of nature. You know, things that are larger than us and uncontrollable. And then I made lots of eaves because I thought without Eve there's no spiritual development like she takes the apple and eats the apple and because of that like the world begins the human world begins of having a spiritual interior life like without that everybody's just happy living in paradise and nothing happens there's no conflict there's nothing you have to have something like Judas to me too always is a character or something that activates something like that sacrifices himself to activate the spiritual world of humans so sometimes these people that are considered treacherous or unbecoming behavior or whatever are really what is needed to bring much benefit to humans so to me, I always say these stories like that, they're very compelling because they have these aspects that nobody pays attention to about how necessary the antagonist is really to, to the benefic part of life. And all of those figures have these strange, you know, their stories are fantastical, but and they're also their stories are changing all the time and being reiterated and remade and re-added to it. They're like snowballs going through time and space and picking up, yeah, like detritus or debris or something. And then sometimes those things are making like a circumstance outside of me, you know, of themselves that where they can go together to make an exhibition or make some kind of configuration. Sometimes they're very singular it all changes all the time yeah totally i mean but i mean you were raised catholic yeah sort of yeah but just interesting in terms of those stories being ingrained and i guess mythology is something that appears so much in your work as well i mean what is this fascination do you think it's about storytelling i think a lot of it's about stories but seeing and certainly And my mother converted from Episcopalian to Catholicism just because that was what one did at the time when I was, you know, if you had children to, with Catholics. And then she moved more towards Hinduism and then Buddhism. So we were raised 
sort of Catholic, but certainly the stories, the representation of stories, the Old Testament stories were very moving to me. And we had children's books of the Old Testament. And, you know, it was about like Moses as a child and his father making idols and then he gets in trouble. But this thing about what is idolatry, what is the one God, what is idolatry, what does it mean to imbue objects with vitality or with saints, like with attributes and all these things. Those things, they just always were incredibly fascinating to me and um, alive. And not on purpose, you know, it's just sometimes, you know, I guess sometimes in my adult life, I really liked thinking about them. Like for a while I was making things about Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf and, I don't know, somebody asked me, most of the things I'm doing or most things, they don't make any sense. It's just like you're someplace, somebody asked me to be in a show about something and just by chance they showed me this Gustave Doré etching of Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf and then I was really shocked that they were the same size and then the show was supposed to be about thinking about a future of a city. And I said, oh, they can have a gang of girls or a pack of wolves. Like it can go back to nature, the city can disappear and go back. Or maybe these girls can save the day. And I thought, oh, no, they're the same thing, the girls and the wolves. They're both what is unruly and unconsidered and to nature and... So then you start making these sort of packs, alliances between things that you think don't have any alliance, but in reality they're much closer to each other than they are to anything else or something. You know, like since I saw that bobcat, I think, oh, I have to think about <laughs> what does a bobcat mean? Or so, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just yeah. something minding its business. But still, it conjures up all of these other possibilities, you know. Yeah, it almost inspires like a way of thinking. Yeah, and it just, it's like splinters in your head or something like that. And they pierce different aspects of all different sides of things. And then then at some point you can have sort of, a, not necessarily complex, but some whole, more whole understanding of something that yeah. you didn't know you needed to think about. Yeah, I have that with writing as well. Because it's almost like you, ha yeah, you have all these ideas, like splinters, like you say. And then you just, okay, well, for me, it's like I've got a page and I've got to fill it. And then after I finish writing, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking that week. <laughs> you know, I, I, but also I kind of, I love the immediacy of it. And yeah. I always think people should catch the immediacy of something and actually not think about things for, I mean, yeah. it depends if it's a long form piece of writing or not. Yeah. But sometimes actually that immediacy and that idea of memory, it can really take you back to that moment. Yeah, sometimes things, I think when you get old, like, to me, lots of things come and go quicker than I can catch them. <laughs> they're really good. They're so, have such clarity, and at the same time, they're moving faster than I can catch. And other times, they will come back again. You'll recognize that you've seen that fragment before, but... No, it's, you know, things are given to everyone all the time. Information is given to everyone, and... You know, I think artists just pay attention to what they're given. And then they run with it, see where it takes them. But it's about having trust in what you're given also. 
I think what's extraordinary about your work as well in terms of thinking about, in a way, thinking about Catholic imagery or something such as birth or, or that I was I grew up around was looking at national galleries or the Uffizi or somewhere where, you know, in a way that birth was seen as this almost immaculate thing. And actually, I think what's extraordinary about your work and the way that you play with birth, but also death, and decay, and actually, I know it was in the early 1980s that your sort of work sort of really shifted to looking at this. I mean, you know, looking at something like Hand in a Jar or Untitled from 1987 with all the water cooler bottles. I mean, I'm fascinated about how that came about, and was it wanting to reinterpret death or birth in a different way? Well, probably. Like one thing, my father died when I was 26, and I was in 1980. So then I had to think about death, like I was forced to kind of think about it. And I mean, in that sense, I'm Irish Catholic American. You know, we had wakes and I went and made, my father had death masks of his mother always sitting in the hall. And really? so my sister and I went to the funeral parlor and made a death mask and cast my father's head in his hands. And then my sister died later of AIDS and I went and cast her face and her hands and then the people wanted me to kind of go into a business of that and I was like I think I'll skip it <laughs> some people asked me and I felt like it was like my community service work but I mean, with people I didn't know they just would ask me and I said okay but because I wasn't afraid of it but right at that time too a friend of mine gave me a book of Grey's Anatomy you know which was a very standard 19th century anatomy book that pre-photography that all was illustration and I just identified with it like I identified with it as a language that everything I looked at may often maybe not spleens and pancreases at that moment but it was so attractive to me to learn this interior biology and what the different organs were doing and how they're doing it in concert. And you know, even now, they've made discoveries in the last 10 years about whole other systems in the body that they never knew about. It's such an unknown space, and at the same time, you could look at it the way you could look at a letter in the alphabet or a word, you know, like I was speaking to my husband today once. I used to go to a Sufi mosque and study Arabic calligraphy and that each word was like a hologram. And it was sort of at a time when holograms were still kind of new concepts to us, but that each word contained everything so that you could look at your lungs and that could contain your whole life or, you know, all these different things, your wisdom teeth. You know, it was a way just to look at the facets of your life or what meaning those things held to you. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. What are your thoughts on beauty as well? I think beauty is something really important. But I don't think, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't think about, I think beauty is also something like the meaning of characters or whatever, that it's something that always is being, you have to turn and see new aspects of, you know, so that what we think of beauty as one moment might become too constrictive. And, you know, for me, being an artist is like, that's one of the places in culture where people keep kicking out the jams, kicking out where the society or whatever is being constricted, that you have to keep 
chopping away and kicking that further out because, you know, we're much more complex and whole than any representation of us is at ever. And so we have to keep expanding that. And that can have totally different kinds of representations in terms of illustration, but just different manifestations. But I think also beauty is also about love and attention to what you're doing. You know, and so for me, it's very important to, uh, when I'm doing something, I mean, lots of times when you're making things, it's totally boring, you know, and I'm watching lots of English murder mysteries and stuff <laughs> to try to stay awake. Because you just do these things that go on forever. You know, I'm making things that are very processory, so you have to, like, do the same action, which is something I'm very attracted to, like making a mark 20 billion times, like it calms me down. But... There's parts of it which are really boring, but at the same time, like if you're making something, you want to devote yourself to that, to show, and not to show your devotion, but to show maybe for yourself that you actually cared about your own experience and devotion, that you gave it your best that you could on that day or something like that, that you care for what you're doing. Mm. And that could still have a very brutal physicality to it or something like someone might not think that's beautiful but to me that that putting in your energy with uh, love into it somehow is beautiful yeah to see you know and you see it people that you know care about what they're doing and that they have followed it through and being willing to do that. And I know sometimes, like and when I was younger and now too, sometimes I'm not willing to go as far as I should go. It just frightens me or something makes me uncomfortable. And I'll kind of go, oh, it's okay. But then for the most part, I have to go. Like I watch myself at my foundry where I work because I go there and just start making something. I mean, like normal people make their things at home and bring it to the foundry and get it made. <laughs> but I just show up there and then I start making something. Yeah. In materials that are not easy or useful to make, like make things out of wax, which is not a good material to make something <laughs> out of. Like I just see, I get to a point and I think, well, that's okay. And then you come back and you go, no, that's not right. And it can take a year of just these like incredibly minute, rearrangements or maneuvers or something and then at a certain point you go that's okay and you could never the thing getting older that I see is that you could never know all of that to begin with like it's really a journey and you're really given information along the way at different times that you couldn't have had until you had a certain experience or you saw something passing by somewhere you couldn't make the thing couldn't come into existence without all of those different moments and sometimes you have to really put away things for years that there's no resolution to it and then sometimes there is maybe and sometimes you can't do it and you're just stuck with that too but you know that though that's to me really where things are at like just giving things time to reveal themselves on their terms. You know, that definitely takes time. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I asked about beauty as well, I think, is because 
you know, whenever I do see your work, no matter what subject matter it is or something you make us see beauty in something that perhaps wouldn't have been beautiful. Like even, I remember I saw some prints of yours a few years ago. I'm just remembering now of some flowers that were funerary flowers. Oh, yeah. And then you made the prints out of them. And actually just like that idea of actually those flowers being part of that procession or something and then immortalizing them in a print it actually allows for that person's spirit to live on forever and actually that's putting beauty in death or something yeah and it was just it was also just the things that things that are i don't know if people are beautiful when they're dead particularly after a while but flowers you know sort of uh, decompose at a slow rate you yeah. know so you could have dead flowers in your house for about a year or so you know without having too much dust on them or something but they have aspects that are as beautiful as when they were in the garden or something you know so that things and you know and certainly with getting older you have to think about things like that like where you relocate what's beautiful to you or what you appreciate and what you appreciate about people aging or that all of these things are beautiful at different moments. At certain moments of your life, you can't imagine that. And then other moments, you you know it, you know. Which is all about the joy of experiencing different things at different stages in your life. Yeah, and if one's lucky, one gets to live a long time. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, that, that's a great gift. And also being an artist, if one's lucky, one can have it go over time and kind of snowball around catching detritus, you know, like catching debris, seeing like what rocks are inside there or gems or something that you think is engaged, that engage you and that still engage you because you, know, you get to also see that, you know, over time, Certain things fade away, but there are other things that are in- still incredibly exciting to you, and you can go back to, again, like methods of doing things or materials, but also images or, you know, that they change and evolve and have or fall apart or all different things happen to them over time. Well, Kiki Smith, thank you so much for this incredible insight into your work, your philosophy, how you see the world. Um, it's been incredibly enlightening and you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Group and Artist with the fantastic Kiki Smith. I am just in awe of all of her work and she makes me see the world in a completely different light. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.